Hi, I'm Alicia. Hi, I'm Sarah. We're two English teachers reclaiming literacy through pop culture. Welcome to Lit. Hi, Sarah. It has already been a day here on my end. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put it out there. So welcome to Half Awake Alicia World. But I'm so excited for our topic for tonight. This is one of my picks. This is, dare I say, it's not revenge for Oppenheimer, but you got Oppenheimer. It might be. <laughs> good omens. <laughs> you enjoyed good omens though, it, to some extent. I I did. I I did. I enjoyed it, but I wouldn't rewatch it. How's that? That's fair. That's fair. I think that's very fair. Uh, well, this is something that my partner first got me onto, and I know you've already said you like the first season more than the second season, things that we can mm-hmm. unpack a bit more as we go. But uh, for anyone who wants to watch Good Omens, you can check it out on Amazon Prime. And we're going to do something a little bit different. I think I especially was intrigued by Good Omens because of where I'm at in my own spiritual journey. Again, something we don't need to super unpack. But the reality is Good Omens is cracking open the Christian world in a way that a lot of other media does not. And as a result, it's playing with Christianity as a form of mythology instead of just reverently saying we don't touch Christianity because it's only truth. And that's what I want us to play with a bit today is our literary terms of the week are going to have to do with mythology. So I'm going to talk a bit about mythology, and Sarah's begrudgingly going to talk about good omens, and that's going to be our episode for today. So uh, let's just kind of go through the elements of the myth. Let's go back and forth and say how we see these in good omens. Let's also clarify, I think, one of the reasons why I've already challenged you to say that you like season one more than season two is that season one is based on a book, so it's a much more established storyline. The fact that there are other seasons being written only by Neil Gaiman, it speaks a bit more to Neil Gaiman's a very unique writing style. We've talked about author voice already this season. He has a very unique Mm -hmm. voice, but with that, he has a very unique story structure. He kind of goes here and he often leaps. He goes, by the way, we're here. And he doesn't really explain how we got there. And I think that's a lot of season two, if you would agree with that. Yeah, Yeah. it is. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I did. I enjoyed season one a lot more than I enjoyed season two, but there was a, there were probably a lot of reasons for that, but we're not going to unpack all of them. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, okay. We've let Sarah share her feelings, so let's go into mythology. So let's start here. Traditionally, it has to be a myth and not just traditional fantasy or even traditional science fiction because it begins with a power push either led by supernatural individuals or between supernatural individuals and mortal human individuals. So how do we see that in Good Omens? I think that's a good place to start as we establish our main characters. Well, since we start season one with creation, Mm -hmm. you see a supernatural being and the expulsion from Eden and um, the angels are all supernatural beings too, Mm -hmm. because they have specific powers that have been given to them. And that becomes the, the through line all of them we have the we have all the archangels we've got gabriel we have michael um and so in addition to our two main characters we've got these other outside of that the elzebub in 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 hell um who's literally the lord of the flies good other literary reference right right that brings you back to lord of the flies Mm -hmm. um you see lucifer once so 
Lucifer makes that appearance once. And that is a part of mythology. Mythology is the very big supernatural hierarchy. You have a supernatural hierarchy. So you've got God and Lucifer on your side that have the, that are the highest of order. And then everyone beneath them that then is also has supernatural powers and is doing all the things. But even more than that, let's Um, acknowledge good omens itself is mythological because of our two protagonists is they're an angel and a demon. So as we're talking about, not mm -hmm. only do we have the supernatural hierarchy established, but then we're zooming in on how these two superhuman characters are existing in the human world. Right. And what's unique specifically is our two protagonists. They have been in the human world long enough they kind of are muddled about do they act more human or do they act more as their superhuman selves or supernatural selves. And I think that that's one of the, again, morality pieces that we'll, we'll get to in a minute. And what are the names of our two main characters again for reference? Aziraphale. And Crowley. And Crowley. Yeah. Crowley. 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 Played, by, played by David Tennant. Crowley. Yeah. Aziraphale and yeah. Crowley. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> All right. So, we have this establishment of angels and demons, you know, presumptively we've been told in the Christian world that angels are the pure goody good guys and the demons are the bad baddie bad guys. But again, our show Good Omens here is going to play with that a little bit more. It's also going to suggest that God is a woman in this world, which are is already again inverting the traditional Christian narrative. So, hey, then one of the other elements we often see in mythology is a transformation or a metamorphosis where do we see that at any point um the the transformation or metamorphosis was interesting to me because when we're talking about metamorphosis the first thing that comes to mind is this idea of in the first season where we have the birth of the antichrist or the supposed birth of the antichrist and (laughs) that story gets metamorphosized because the the baby that's supposed to be the antichrist gets lost and somebody else is thought to be the antichrist. So there has been a metamorphosis of name and place, not necessarily a physical metamorphosis. Um, And then one of the funny things that happens is when the hellhound is released and finds the actual antichrist, um, it's a, kid and he just wants a do- a small little dog and so this hellhound gets transformed into a small little gentle dog creature <laughs> that is not gonna hurt anybody right so we see that metamorphosis happen then we see the metamorphosis of the antichrist also that goes from being a kid to all of a sudden having these massive powers but then saying i don't want these massive powers and kind of turning that whole end times narrative upside down and it's supposed to be this end times and it's supposed to be following not not even an actual biblical outline of how the how the end times are supposed to happen but instead of following an extra biblical version of how the end times are supposed to happen because it's going it that that's not what's actually in the bible somebody else made they they interpreted and came up their own definition of it in the 20th century um and so this definition is also a metamorphosis of what is understood by most people to be symbolic mm-hmm. as opposed to being Literal. actual a foretelling yeah. of what's going to happen. And so 
there's that's where I saw a lot of because again I really like the first season but the second season makes some metamorphosis in terms of the way people relate to each other too Gabriel all of a sudden goes from being this all-powerful being to having amnesia and being in on, on earth and trying to figure out what his place is and what everybody else is trying to figure out where he is and also trying to Aziraphale and Crowley are trying to figure out how are we, what are we going to do with this angel? We don't know what to do with this guy that just showed up in our bookshop. And isn't there, arguably though, Aziraphale and Crowley, part of them living in the human world for so long, there's arguably a metamorphosis every time they have to adapt to the times because they've lived so long. But there's also mm. arguably, again, a metamorphosis of their understanding of morality, their understanding of their role in the world. I, I, I think we often assume metamorphosis has to be this like, quick flip. Right. And we definitely see a lot of those quick flips in the first season. But I think then there's also there is a kind of that slow transformation. And just side note, as we're talking about like favorite moments in the show, my absolute favorite moment in the show is when Crowley and Aziraphale are standing at the, on the sidelines of the crucifixion of Jesus. And they're talking about like, why did they hang this guy i thought he was great like i thought he was just sharing a message and they said oh yeah you know they, they just really didn't like what he had to say and crowley says to his earphone what he had to say and he just says be kind like that's that's the message he was sharing with people no one liked it <laughs> yeah. yeah but again and, I, uh, this show i think does a great job we you and i have talked a lot about how without going down a whole other rabbit hole the Christian world has itself metamorphosized in the way it's presented its message and the way it connects with other people. And I think this show satirizes it in a way that we gives you permission to laugh at our absurdity in the current Christian era. I am. We spent a lot of time early on when we were starting the podcast, we would talk about where we saw connections to other outside pieces. Cause we always talk about like, do you see the connection to other outside pieces? And for me personally, as someone who went to college in the late 90s, early aughts, and I am a big Kevin Smith fan. And so I saw a lot of dogma as the parallels here with Good Omens, where you have a relationship of two angels who are best friends. Um, in this case, you have an angel and a demon who are best friends, but you had two angels who are best friends who got expelled from heaven and are dealing with their own crisis of faith as they're going, <laughs> they're trying to figure out what does this mean for us? And, um, and, and I saw, I saw a lot of those parallels too. that metamorphosis of understanding the earth that you're living in and understanding people. And that was the reason why they got expelled from heaven because they, they weren't rebelling necessarily. They were just like, but we know these people like they were laying down a sword and not wanting to, (laughs) it was the angel of death. They got, they laid down a sword and said, I don't really want to do this right now because he had gotten to know the people. And so I think there's this, this transformation that we see and just the way we understand the complexities of the world in which we live in. And you have an angel and a demon who started to see that there's a lot more gray on both sides that neither one of them was comfortable with. And so they were trying to figure out what the gray was on both sides and how they could still play, play their side without getting into trouble. Well, and so I'll be honest, haven't seen dogma that came out back when I was in elementary school. So Sorry. It's okay that you would not, it would, it would not have been good for an elementary school student <laughs> to watch. Valid. I do remember in, in going at, at my 
Christian university, there are a lot of pre-sum guys that actually, like, this was a big discussion the whole, like, people were into going out and watching it and analyzing it, and it's very irreverent, incredibly irreverent, but it's fantastic, <laughs> so. Um, but a lot of people were having fun analyzing the the other messages that Kevin Smith had in it. <laughs> but but God was a woman in that one go. too. She was yep. played by Alaz Morissette. Uh, God was she referenced was as a woman in Ted Lasso. So, you know, it's just all of it's full yes. circle. Yeah. But I mean, I will say coming back to <laughs> good omens, again, as we talk about kind of humanizing these supernatural beings, we have Crowley who has a whole room of houseplants, who has a favorite car. He has you know, these material things in the world. He has music that he specifically loves. We have Aziraphale who is in love with books and really loves food. And so we have these really interesting elements of they've very much fallen in love with the world that they are intended to be protecting. And even we see Crowley who's constantly you know, poking people and instigating a lot of big historical events. We see Aziraphale who's constantly trying to prevent Crowley's ridiculousness. And also how they've secretly become friends in the midst of their tomfoolery that they're supposed to be doing to perpetuate the lines of good and evil in the greater cosmos. Uh, well, so then, hey, the, the, one of the other things that we see, we see lots of origin of life stories and explanations of the natural world stories. So I just reference one of my favorites is we definitely, we see... Crowley and Aziraphale on the sidelines of a lot of famous biblical moments. So you mentioned we see them at creation in the very first episode. I mentioned we see them at the crucifixion. We see them in season two a lot alongside the story of Job and the complications of that story as that has been warped in modern Christian culture. But tell me a bit more, Sarah, about the role of those kind of origin pieces in the story and how that connects the story at large in Good Omen. We we start with creation that that's just mythology. Like we're talking about, I, we were talking about this before we even started. When we talk about mythology with our students, we're talking about the or how things came mm-hmm. to be and why things are the way that they are. And so that's part of the story of creation for them too. It's not just the fall of man, but it's also um, Aziraphale has his flaming sword. He was supposed to use his flaming sword and then he loses his flaming sword because he gives it to people because he's trying to give them something to protect themselves, not realizing he's also giving them the means with which to destroy other human beings. Um, and it it pops up when they're supposed to be seeing the end of the world that doesn't happen. Um, we see that with Noah and the Ark and the and the story of Noah and the Ark has been used in so many ways to explain evil in the world. Um, it's been used to explain rain- rainbows. Um, and so there's so many elements to that that we don't, we, we, we try to understand and, and what is trying to be said here. But then there's also the nature of, of human, our humanity. The fact that Noah was supposed to be coming off this Ark and everything's supposed to be all new. Everything's supposed to be all new there. And Noah... <laughs> screws up as soon as he gets off the ark (laughs) and he makes this huge big mistake right um and then you have job and the story of job and the questions when it comes to job about what does it mean to be a a man of god and to be beloved and to always do the right thing and then everything Mm -hmm. falls apart and metaphorically there's so much in Job, that if you're going to look at it as a piece, as a metaphorical piece, 
the fact that as human beings, we, we can't know the full picture. There's so many things that we don't know until even years after something happens. Like we can go through something that's horrible and it will take us several years to be able to look back and say, okay, so I can kind of see how I came out of this and not that you find purpose in whatever happened to you, but you can see a through line to where you are now. And it's so hard to say that with Job because it, I mean, his whole life is falling apart. And yet you have God saying, Hey, look, there's this whole beautiful passage in Job where God gives a speech about, look, I created all of this. I did all of this and I got this. I got this. And Job's still asking him, but you did all this. And God's like, I got this. And it really is this incredible passage that comes in much later after anything you read in the Bible stories, <laughs> after anything that you're going to read in Sunday school. Um, but the question is, why would you let bad things happen? Which is the question of Job. That's the question of Job. Why do you let bad things well, happen? Well, let's push back it then in Good Omens. We, we acknowledge that the text of Job in the Bible is very different from the narrative version of Job that we are often handed in sermons and Sunday schools, all these different things. But we only, we only get the very first right. part. That's all we but ever then, get. Right. Which ultimately is that God, Job was a man of God. And so then the devil is like, we'll prove it. And God says, fine, go ahead, do your worst. So mm-hmm. good omens though, pl- does play with that question. How we've warped that as well, because it's playing with this fact that why would, if this person is supposed to be most favored by God, why would God do all these things? So we even ultimately see Aziraphale and Crowley taking that challenge into their own hands because Aziraphale is like, why, why would you kill his children? Why would you do, why would you go this far just to prove your point that he's loyal to you no matter what? Isn't this, he's just, he the best. No, that's actually awful. So we, we end up having Aziraphale who protects the children and then I mean, at the end of Job, we find out that he, he had more children, but they play with jokingly, no, he didn't have more children. Aziraphale just gave him the same children back. And they, they fooled the angels who have no concept of human gestation, period. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I guess I, I will say I appreciated that. Again, if one of our next elements is a moral through line, it's defining what good and evil is. A lot of what Good Omens is still playing with is that there are gray areas, even in what we try to make any religion, we try to make finitely black and white, but true spirituality exists in that gray area where you have to wrestle with both, where you have to engage with both. And I think that's what you see with Aziraphale, who is a bit of a glutton, and yet he's still a good person, where you see Crowley who is actually pretty compassionate, but he also likes to make things blow up. You know, it's, it's, it's both. He likes to yell at his plants and <laughs> hold them at the, at the fear of death that one well, of them. And don't tell him, don't tell him he's compassionate because he doesn't want to hear that he's right. compassionate. He is one of those people that is be not a person. He's an angel or he's a demon. Um, he's a fallen angel. Um, <laughs> but you know, he doesn't want to hear that he did the right thing. He doesn't want to hear that he was compassionate. He wants to hear that he's as bad as he thinks he is when he isn't actually as bad as he thinks he is. He's just doing, he's, 
he's almost become more human. They both have, they both have in, in being in the human world, they've become more human, human. And it is much easier to see things as black and white when you don't have to live with the consequences of those actions, which is one of the reasons why they're trying to stop the end of the world, because they understand the consequences of that other other angels and demons don't they're not on earth they don't see the good they see that they also they crowley and Azarafel have seen the bad they know the bad they've experienced it because they've seen they there's so many different historical moments that we see over the course of the show that they have been there for but they also have seen the beauty that is on earth too and everything from the food which they which Aziraphale loves to books to plants to just human beings being human beings and doing not just terrible things but also doing good things and sometimes doing terrible and good things at the same time well something something as simple as because humans are complex something as simple as falling in love I mean this is something in season two this concept of love and romance uh, becomes a huge thing, but I, I'm going to push back even more and say, it's not just about them becoming more human. It's also Crowley doesn't want to hear that he is good because the reason he's a fallen angel is because he believes he's seen flaws in the greater system and he's tried to divorce himself from that system. So he would argue, I didn't fall, I left. That that would be his argument, right? That it, I saw the system was broken and so I decided to break free from the system. While ultimately, this is a big part of season two, Aziraphale is clinging to this system that he doesn't know how to live without. This is what gives him meaning. This is what helps him understand the world is the lens of the system that he is ascribed to. So Gabriel could be problematic, but he's still an archangel. There could, he still might not understand the higher plan, but he knows that there's a higher plan. And Aziraphale has to hold desperately onto, there has to be a greater good. There has to be a higher plan. There has to be an ultimate conclusion that I can root for. Because if there isn't, what am I doing here? And this is the thing that ultimately breaks them when Crowley comes to him and says, can you choose us? Maybe instead of either system, which is divorcing the system or choosing the system, can you choose us? And that's too hard of a question for Aziraphale. Well, there's almost with Crowley, there's almost a paradise lost type of element to it in that whole decision that he he doesn't want to be a part of a broken system. So he would rather just leave it, which is why he's also happier on earth, right? Mm-hmm. But there is almost that paradise lost idea where he, you know, Lucifer makes a decision he's going to rebel against God, but it's a decision he made. Like he makes that decision to do so. And the consequences are that he's expelled from heaven. Well, here Crowley can't go to heaven until they switch places, which was really funny, by the way, when they switched places at the end of season one. And I was like, something happened when they switch identities and both of them go where they belong. Right. But it doesn't appear like they're going to be going there so it it just it's complicated i think that was one of the things i did appreciate about book vitamins was that it highlights the complication of the earth that we live on and the world that we live in well and 
being able to talk about that. Yeah. Well, the the complication of the earth we live in and how we, we try to use spirituality to answer all the questions when sometimes spirituality is just more, it should be open up a space for us to all sit in understanding that we don't have all the answers, right? Spirituality. There's humility in not having all the answers. It's being able to be humble and say, I don't have all the answers, which is what you don't get from archangels and you don't get that from the head demons either like you don't get that on either side they're neither one that's able that brings us to if that lack of humility is so evident when we get to the end of the world when they're trying to create the end of the world and they're trying to have the last days and they're trying to force this child to end it all and he doesn't want to because he kind of likes his life on earth and he wants to just keep it the way that it is but they don't have enough humility to understand that human beings have free will. And because human beings have free will, he's still a human being and he still is going to do what he wants to do. And you just have to accept that that's the way it is. And to see that the world is so much bigger than the world that they had created for themselves. It's like this vision that they had created for themselves and the conflict that they had, that there was more to even the universe than mm-hmm. them that they are not all that's in the universe. And season two then also is Gabriel literally couldn't sit with that knowledge, right? Something in Gabriel had to change and shift and even break a little bit for him to be able to exist in a world where his finite dogma that he had prescribed to, it it can't actually function anymore. And so he's not going to go to the extreme of Crowley, but he has to figure out, but then how can I exist? What does this look like? And I mean, ultimately, he gets. He also is about. He gets fired as being the head archangel, um, which I mean, just the fun. The elevators that come up and down from Earth and and Hell, all of our concepts of, of what the supernatural world beyond uh, our world look like. I grew up in high school reading Frank Peretti books. I don't know if you remember those at all. I read a couple of them. There, oh, yeah. I was. Oh yeah. Plenty that we could unpack there. Yep. But again, if you want to talk about someone who's mythologizing our angelic and demon narrative, I mean, that's the reality of we we see elements of angels and demons in the Christian scriptural texts. But the ways that we have turned it into guardian angels and the way that we have talked about, I mean, Frank Peretti would talk about anytime you were sinful, you had a demon sitting on your shoulder and swirling their finger in your brain is that actually what's happening? We have no way of knowing, but this is what we do. I mean, we're, we're still, even people who prescribe to the Christian religion, they are still fiddling with the elements of mythology to try and understand the puzzle pieces we've been handed about religion. So let's talk about fate and prophecy. I was about to say, so, hey, that's a great uh, fate and prophecy. And, I I won't say Hero's Journey, but I will say Quest. Arguably, okay, season one, the Quest is seeking our understanding or seeking out you know, the, the son of the, oh my gosh, the son of Satan. And then season two, the Quest is figuring out what's going on with Gabriel. But then Fate and Prophecy, how do you say, how do you believe that those play into the show? There both sides in season one are determined to have their final battle. 
and they're determined to have their final battle in the time that they have prescribed as being, this is the time that we have to do it. And we have to do it within this time frame, and it has to happen within this hour, within this moment. And that becomes the fate and prophecy is that you have an antichrist who's been told that this is his fate when he's just like, nah. And oh no. this prop, nah. um, you have this prophecy that is supposed to become fulfilled. And if it doesn't become fulfilled, it, it is going to throw everything up into chaos. Um, which is very funny because I think of how many times throughout history, people have, have proclaimed the end of the world when they're not supposed to know. I would also argue that fate especially plays into there's, this presumption that good will always triumph over evil. That is supposed to be fate as well. You know, the good guys always win, the bad guys always lose. And ultimately that is what happens in the show, but it still then pushes back it. But who is good and who is evil? Because again, Aziraphale is not perfect. Crowley is not perfect. And by that, he one is not purely good and one is not purely evil. They are a bit of both and they're who we're ultimately rooting for in this world of exactness if that's fair to say can we also talk about the seven horsemen of the apocalypse i think they are so much fun in season one mm. the way that they're yes, they were an interesting way to portray yeah. them mm-hmm. i i, I yeah. thought yeah no i thought that was an interesting way to portray the horsemen and to show them as a modern take on the horsemen, I think to take modern warfare and say, how do these things play out? Allied pollution being a part of it, um, that our problems have the embodiment of our problems. Our problems have not changed as humans, but the embodiment of our problems have changed as humans, which we talked about with Oppenheimer. Like, you know, all of a sudden you have warfare has always been there, but then all of a sudden you have, this potential for nuclear holocaust which will destroy the planet well and we're going to talk about this which was later this there. season when we address the tv show adaptation of percy jackson this i love mm-hmm. that we're living in a world where we can say that mythology it's like shakespeare and that it's timeless it's just going to look different in whatever season of life season of the world we're living in so are there still going to be horsemen of the apocalypse? Are there still going to be you know, our own ruin around us at every minute? Yes. But what happens when we bring all of them together in our current world? What does that look like? What yeah. power would they bring? And yeah, could we actually look at how each of those horsemen exist in Oppenheimer? Yeah, we probably could. And that would reiterate why I think it's such a bleak movie. But that's another tangent for another day. <laughs> That is true. I (laughs) and there is a quest element to it, and you know we we joke about the hero's journey, but there is a quest element to it in that you are seeking an end. You're trying to go. You're going through all these steps to get to an end goal, and the end goal for them in the first season is is rescuing. It's not rescuing. It's and it's stopping the end of the world. That becomes the quest to stopping in the world which they play a role in, but at the same time, you discover it's not just their quest. There are other characters who are a part of that quest too. 
my daughter said the reason why I didn't like season the second season as much is because we didn't have the witch and her boyfriend. And I did enjoy their storyline very much so in the first one, but I just liked the first season better. Um, but that was something, that quest was a fascinating look at prophecy because she's going through a whole book. I'm talking about prophecy again, but she's looking through a whole book that her grandmother, great, 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 great grandmother gave that had all these prophecies that she has seen come true through time right up to the man that she accidentally falls in love with, even though it was prophesied. But she is also so the witch is so driven by these prophecies that she can't see outside of the prophecies, which is why she throws the prophecies, prophecies at the way at the end, because we sometimes become so obsessed with what will happen. We don't let things happen. And that is what happens to a lot of those characters. It's, as they're going on this quest, they're so obsessed with what they've been told will happen. They won't just let things well, and happen. Well, even and and, Gabriel and Beelzebub, their yeah. unlikely relationship in season two, the two of them are totally lost. If they can't focus on the end of days and the ultimate battle of good and evil, what is left for them? They have to figure it out. And that's where their unlikely relationship comes together because they're lost together. But mm-hmm. it's still playing with that yeah. idea of, well, I, I had I had such a just laser pointer direction. If I don't have that path beneath me anymore and I have to play with an, or think about something else for my, my destiny, my future, my own fate, I've never been given that opportunity and I don't know how to do it. Yeah. And I think the obsession with the the prophecy is a fascinating look even it's, it's something that fits in the 21st century because people are so fascinated by what's going to happen mm-hmm. always that they forget that they're not supposed to know what's going to happen they're not supposed to know in scripture it says over and over again you're not supposed to know what's going to happen so you can try to make all these guesses that you want but you're not going to pick the hour and the time it's just not going to happen for you and that's because we're just life happens and you just have to accept that life is going to happen at different times. And nobody likes that. People like to know there's some kind of certainty out there and we want certainty. And that's what all these angels and demons want. They want certainty that this is what is that exactly then what mythology is also trying to do. It's trying to offer certainty in the midst of uncertainty. So much of early mythology was, I don't know why a turtle has a shell. Let's make up a story about it. Okay. Now I feel better. I don't know why spiders spin webs. Let's make up a story about it. Okay, now I feel better. I don't know how the world came to be. Mm -hmm. I don't know how the world is going to end. Okay, let's write a story about it. This is also why, I mean, mythology, I think, connects to the belief. Some people say there are either only three storylines that have ever been told, and so therefore all stories have already been told in some form, or there are seven. I don't know what the seven are. I know the three are life, death, and marriage. But it's interesting to play with that ultimately could we push every story into one of those categories? Yes. And then it's just how do we rearrange the equation to tell a different story? But we're also acknowledging, I mean, Good Omens is already building off of stories that have already been told and then putting an original spin on it in some way. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you for tolerating good omens. 
just so you know, there's only going to be one more season. <laughs> Neil Gaiman is writing it right now. And I think you and I can both agree that there's something beautiful about TV shows that say, I'm only going to write this much. It's I only need to tell this much of the story. I don't need to drag it out anymore. And then I'm done. I do appreciate it when they, when people know that it's played out. I, f- I was very happy that the good place ended the way the good place, when like when they were like, we're done. We're dying out. That and the good place is too. another great example of, I mean, I would say it's even oh, leaning more towards satire, but it's it's mythologizing the Christian concept of morality, really leaning into what is morality in our modern world. But that's a conversation for another. I don't day. even think that it's necessarily a specific faith origin for it's looking. It's just looking at morality and the question the questions everybody has about the. Afterlife. I mean, there's still there's still it's heaven and hell. So I guess that's I would argue it, it's starting with yeah. There's that concept of a good place and a bad place. Beyond that. But who knows? Maybe we'll have to do a good place episode someday. I really loved the good place. That could be fun. It just, it it had a a great arc. (laughs) But no Noah. So, you know, (laughs) how did it get anywhere? We don't know. um, No, it had no Noah. (laughs) (laughs) But it had a great, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Ron arc. (laughs) A C instead of a K, but. Well then, Sarah, Ugh, why don't we'll go you go ahead? Let's 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 take this puppy home and tell me what are you enjoying right now that isn't good omens. Okay, so let's be honest. I did not really enjoy this book so much as it blew my mind, and it explains so much. Um, Timothy, Timothy Egan, who's a historian, and he wrote a book about the Dust Bowl several years ago that became the basis for a documentary that I loved about the Dust Bowl. I know I'm weird. Um, but he published last year a book called the, A Fever in the Heartland, which looks at the rise and the fall of the KKK in the 20th century, mm-hmm. particularly centered on Indiana, because Indiana had the largest population of the KKK in the United States, which I don't think most people understand mm-hmm. or believe, but it's true. My husband and I used to joke the first time we lived in Indiana that we lived in the northernmost southern state, mm-hmm. but it's not a joke. <laughs> I mean, there's just, there's some dark history. There are things I love about Indiana, but there is some very dark history in Indiana. And um, it is the story of the Grand Dragon who really led the charge to grow it in the heartland, primarily in Indiana, but then also in Ohio and in Illinois. And his eventual murder trial when a woman who he brutally raped died after she was raped and had given her testimony for gave a signed affidavit before she died of everything that happened to her and the trial that essentially didn't just it brought him down because he got he ended up in prison um because he got convicted of second degree murder but the fact that he was such an important leader and had done so much to consolidate a lot of the government officials and everything else in Indiana and surrounding areas and him, his fall from grace became a fall from grace for so many people. Um, it is, it is eye opening because you look at it and you're like, okay, we've been here before. Like you look at what things are happening in 2024. And you're like, we've, we've been here before. It looked different, <laughs> just like it looked different in the twenty in the nineteen twenties as it did 
in the 1820s, right? So like it, it looked different, but we've been in this place before. So it was weirdly hopeful, but also very disturbing and incredibly informative and mind blowing. And I think everybody should read it. And it doesn't just talk about Indiana, like Indiana is where everything's focused because that's where he was. But it also looks at just the explosion everywhere. Like I didn't realize, I knew that it was out West, but I didn't realize that Colorado and Oregon had had such big numbers. Um, it just the way that it really went national in like a 10 year span. So there was like this really quick rise and this really quick fall. And I started thinking about all the people. I was like, how many people don't know that they have this deep, dark family secret that they just don't know. Like it's a, it's a dark family secret. So anyway, highly recommend, but it is not an enjoyable read. <laughs> so how about that? Um, but then on the flip side of that, we've been, and I haven't watched every single episode because my family has watched without me on a couple of occasions, but we've been enjoying Young Sheldon <laughs> because we, just, my husband is like, I heard that was really good and maybe we should sit down and watch it. And there's so many things about it besides the fact that we really enjoyed Big Bang Theory, but it takes place in Texas. And so there's a lot of Texas stuff that we get as a family because there's a lot of jokes that were like, <laughs> that is so East Texas. <laughs> it's just the different things that happen and his family says and, you know, discussions with his parents about even things like Lone Star beer, which we had in our house a few times and also we cooked with it. Um, but just, just all the things of watching this young genius try to figure things out. So it's fun. It's not something you're going to watch if you're looking for serious comedy, but it's fun. Enjoy it. Okay. There I'm good. I gave a really long explanation of my book and I gave a short one about the, what I'm watching. So how about you? Well, on the other side of uh, reading, I am not in a space where I can handle high academia in my books these days. So I will be honest, I jumped on the book talk train and read Fourth Wing after I think the third person recommended it to me. And I appreciate my friends who said, you know, you're going to read it for it's, it's pure entertainment. We were just talking with a potential guest on our show about the reality that I was thinking about it this way, that so often we talk on the show about how art imitates life. This is how you know our life as English teachers we're looking at our pop culture media and saying, see, they, they are the same. That is the premise of Lit Think. But we are very much in an era where instead our life, books, are, is imitating art and that it's imitating pop culture. It's here just to entertain. So as you're saying, young Sheldon, it's not that deep. It's just here to enjoy. And that still plays a role in our world. I think that's as English teachers, we're so often dismissive of these stories. If you don't know about Fourth Wing, mm -hmm. it's we learned the term romanticy recently, but it's, it's dragon worlds, but with a lot of se steamy sex scenes that don't exactly fit, but Hey, the dragons are cool. I really enjoyed the dragons. So I stayed for the dragons. <laughs> I, I got through the smut scenes because I don't really think they moved the story along at all, but Hey, uh, so anyway, that's my, that's my review fourth wing. Then uh, I am so enjoying, I'm so, so, so enjoying uh, my partner is in a play right now. It's tech week. So I am neck deep in lots of trying to interpret the latest word my toddler has learned and is not pronouncing correctly. So once the kids are in bed, I, before I go to bed, I watch an episode of Our Flag Means Death on Max, which is just the sweetest, most adorable little love letter to gay pirates 
I, there's no other way to explain it. But Blackbeard is in it. It's there's this guy basically he leaves his family. He's never really fit in. They call him the gentleman pirate because he's just a really rich guy who managed to make his own boat and is trying to make an equitable living for like set up for his pirate crew. And then on the way happens to fall in love with another boy. And I won't spoil anything, but it's just, it's just darling and kind of dumb, but it makes me happy. So <laughs> that's my media right now. I had heard that it's funny. I think we tried, we were going to start it once and, it's just it's just like books. There's so many yeah. things and so little time. Thanks to all these streaming services. So you have to pick and choose what you're going to start and what you're not. Well, and we tried Jack we tried to start the last season of Jack Ryan recently and we were just like, mm, not really going." Well, to and see, you and I I think we're also in a really interesting season where I'm prone to rewatching something. I mean, it's why when I watched Ted Lasso, I so quickly said, "I want to rewatch this. I want to revisit this story again already." versus taking in some other media i mean there's it's why we reread books that's a whole other lit think thing but i mean we as humans we find comfort in repetition and especially in mm -hmm. in something predictable and once you've visited a story to come back to it there's new things you're going to notice and it's just it, it's comfortable it's it's a little blanket you can wrap around yourself and say yes i know this already i'm back in it and that's good and I'd kind of felt that way about Yen Sheldon too, because like, yes, it's all new, but we know where he ends up. And so yeah. being able to think about what, what he becomes as mm -hmm. an adult, that this is him as a child, we're like, Oh, it's just like with this. And our kids are like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Cause they haven't, clearly haven't seen Big Bang Theory. So we're just like, no, but eventually <laughs> you kind of see that play out. So yeah. You guys, this is why we lit think. This is why we do what we do is because we we love talking about books. We love to talking about media and we love showing the, the meaning that is already there and things that I think we often dismiss as fluff. So, hey, if you want to hear more about how we see flavor in the fluff, don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Lit Think Podcast and subscribe to that Substack newsletter so you can see all of our other content that we are putting out. This has been Sarah and Alicia signing off. Keep on Lit